It's Wednesday, February 14th. Today's WBFO brief was recorded at around 8.30 in the morning. This is WBFO News. A Buffalo man who admitted to setting on fire the bodies of victims of a triple homicide will spend 20 years in prison. WIVB reports 52-year-old Jerry Cobb pleaded guilty to narcotics conspiracy and other charges for assisting in taking the bodies to an area off Tonawanda Street in September 2019. DeAndre Wilson has been convicted of the murders of the three Florida residents during an arranged drug deal in Buffalo. One victim was shot inside a Schiller Park residence while the two others were shot and killed while waiting in a van outside. Wilson and Cobb then used the van to transport the bodies to the Tonawanda Street location. A suspect is in custody in connection with the Tuesday morning shooting inside an Elmwood Avenue apartment complex. Officers responded to the call just after 9.30 in the morning to the 500 block of Elmwood Avenue. Detectives say the incident involves two males known to each other, with one shooting the other inside the complex. A 28-year-old Buffalo male was transported to ECMC, where authorities say he was taken into surgery for apparent non-life-threatening injuries. And health officials are alerting residents of the confirmation of a rabid raccoon in the town of Lockport. According to the Niagara County Department of Health, the specimen was confirmed positive for rabies at the Wadsworth Center Rabies Laboratory. Officials are reminding residents to keep their pets up to date on rabies vaccinations and to keep pets indoors at night. All animal bites should be reported to the health department. Activists say the lead poisoning of over 200 children each year in Buffalo could be avoided if city officials follow the law. Speaking on behalf of 39 organizations pushing for action, Partnership for the Public Good Executive Director Andrea Osuliban says the city needs to adhere to its own proactive inspections law. The implementation since 2020 has been painfully slow. Only 12% of units that were supposed to be inspected under this law have been done so far. So our letter says, please give us documentation within 30 days of how this law will be meaningfully implemented from here on out. Responding in a statement, Buffalo's Commissioner for Permit and Inspection Services, Kathy Amdor, says 138 rental property inspections have been conducted in the first six weeks of this year. Amdor also maintains the Erie County Department of Health is under state mandate to address lead hazards. O'Sullivan says the city could face legal action if the law is not enforced. A Niagara County man will spend jail time for his role in a vehicle crash that left a Newstead man with serious injuries. According to the Erie County District Attorney's Office, 51-year-old Mark Printup of Cambria was under the influence of alcohol when he drove his vehicle through a stop sign, causing a collision with another vehicle. The 22-year-old driver was transported to Mercy Flight or by Mercy Plate to ECMC, where he remained hospitalized for several weeks. And nearly half of the workers in New York City who received tips as part of their compensation say they're leaving the service industry because of low wages. The WBFO Brief podcast is made possible by Canisius University. Join Canisius on Saturday, March 2nd, for a Discovery Day event to learn how your high school student can prepare for college now. Register today at canisius.edu visit. The 5th Annual Black Doll Exhibit runs through April 9th at the Downtown Central Library. WBFO's Holly Kirkpatrick visited the exhibit, which shares stories of black history and the power of representation. When Lisa Jacobs Watson hears the word royalty, she thinks of the following. What we consider in the, the black culture as a queen, a, you know, a, a number one boss on top of her game. Recognizing royalty is the theme of this year's Black Doll exhibit at the central branch of the Buffalo and Erie County Public Library. 
Doll Collector Lisa is the curator of the event, which has been happening every February since 2020 in celebration of Black History Month. So if I come across a doll that is dressed like a queen or a princess or gives that vibe, then I'm all about adding it to my collection. That collection currently totals 200 dolls, according to Lisa, around 20 of which are on display in this year's exhibit. There are fictional characters such as Ariel from Disney's The Little Mermaid, as well as dolls that represent real-life inspirational black women, figures such as civil rights activist Rosa Parks and NASA mathematician Katherine Johnson. But Lisa says her favourite section this year presents black dolls either designed, created or manufactured by people of colour. As a collector, as a curator, it's about the meaning behind the doll. And I, I do go a little bit deeper with who's manufacturing it and how are they manufacturing it? And, and is it accurately representing a person of color? Is it just a white doll that you painted black and threw a wig on it? As opposed to a doll that was manufactured by the heart of someone who really wanted to appeal to a person of color and wanted that parent and that child to truly embrace beauty, higher self-esteem, and know that they can reach the stars regardless of what they look like. And dolls can be a powerful indicator of a person's self-perception. In fact, the exhibit tells of a scientific experiment that arguably proves just that. In the 1940s, the doll test was carried out by psychologists Kenneth and Mamie Clark in an attempt to study the development of self-esteem in black children. In the test, which was carried out on many children separately, two dolls were placed in front of each child. One doll was black and one doll was white. Then each child was asked a series of questions. For example, which is the nice doll? Which doll do you like? Which doll do you prefer? Those types of questions. And more often than not, the children preferred the white doll. The Clarks found that prejudice, discrimination and segregation had negatively impacted how black children saw themselves in the world. And over a decade later, the study underpinned the argument against racial segregation in schools in the 1954 US Supreme Court case Brown v. Board of Education. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court justices unanimously found that racial segregation in schools was unconstitutional. I always use that as a backdrop to get people to think about how far we've come with dolls, how far we've come with society. And then again, just tying it back to how effective dolls can be. And perhaps that effectiveness has played out in Lisa's own life. She says that although black dolls were scarce when she was a little girl, by the time her own daughter was playing with dolls in the 80s and 90s, lots more were available. And I just, I jumped on it. I jumped on it. I bought the dolls. I loved the fact that my daughter could see these cool dolls and it worked out. And when she says it worked out, she means it. Lisa's daughter is chair of the Erie County Legislature, April Baskin, who's also sponsored the exhibit. She came up with the idea and we did this to celebrate Black history. The Black Doll exhibit will be at the Central Library through April 9th. Holly Kirkpatrick, WBFO News. Hi, I'm Emily Watkins. And this is the WBFO Disabilities Beat. This week, I'm joined by the director of Mental Health Peer Connection, Kevin Smith. 
to talk about the value of peer-led mental health services and a local center that provides an alternative to a psychiatric emergency room. We do discuss mental health emergencies in this story. If you are currently dealing with a mental health crisis, you are not alone. And immediate support is available by calling 988 or texting SAVE, S-A-V-E, to 741741. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for joining me on WBFO. Thank you for having me. To start, I'd love to have you share a little bit about what you do at Mental Health Peer Connection. We are an agency that provides behavioral health services for individuals that's experiencing anything that falls within that realm of behavioral health, including mental health and substance use disorders. Uh, But the unique thing about Mental Health Peer Connection is we are staffed or we're in an agency that's staffed by individuals with the lived experience. So all of us have that story to tell. At some point in our life, we were affected by either mental health or behavioral health. And today we're far enough removed from our story where we hopefully can offer that assistance to wellness for other folks. And I know one of the unique programs that Mental Health Peer Connection has is an alternative to CPEP, or at least that's how it's been described to me. And for people who don't know, CPEP is a psychiatric emergency room for people who are going through a crisis. So tell me a little bit about that program that offers something other than CPEP for people going through crisis. Yes, all mental illnesses are different. But specifically, when someone is having a lot of psychiatric uh, or having a psychiatric episode... The emergency room or just being in an environment where there's just so many things going on affecting, you know, what I mean, their sensory and and everything else related to that. It doesn't make things better. So we thought we'd create an environment where they can still get their needs met, but a, a, a calm environment mm-hmm. where uh, there's some one on one. If there's a situation where we can't provide the services that are necessary for that individual, that's where the registered nurse come in. And, of course, we would try to help that person get some level of uh, service that would be more specific to what they need in the moment. But more importantly, our renewal center, it's actually set up like a living room. So it looks like your average living room. There's a couple of sofas, love seat. Uh, there's a fireplace and a television. Um, we try to play, you know, I mean, common things on that television and have the peer support specialist just engage that individual to si- see what it is uh, that we can do to help them in a the moment to maybe develop some wellness tools to uh, help keep them out of uh, the emergency room. And one of the big things about that is when individuals are having difficulty in the moment and they visit uh, say, uh, the ECMC emergency room in hopes to get in help uh, in CPEP, most people don't get admitted. We created that specifically for those individuals as well, not just for the people who are afraid to go to those places because they feel like their rights are going to be violated in some way or they're not going to be able to get the help that they need. So we created a space where people can come and get the help for a crisis as they define it. Mm. At the core of this is that peer support model. Why is peer support so important and um, how can more programs benefit by being peer led? I think it speaks to that authenticity, not just uh, how you help me, but here is someone in front of me that can honestly say they've been in some of the circumstances and the situations that I've been in and uh, they were able to overcome it. 
they were able to get to a place where they were healthy and well enough to um, relay that message, those skills to someone else. And that is something that people gravitate to. I think that gives people, you know, I mean, that hope, even if it's just a pinprick. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, when, when people see that, that spark of life or light or they get that, that hope, that's something that'll keep them coming back. You know what I mean? And I, I remember that feeling early in my own recovery. The first time I walked into a room and sat down with a peer support specialist, I had been in many situations before where I was getting the clinical services or I was going to organizations to get the clinical help. And nobody ever asked me what it was that I wanted to work on. That mm-hmm. was different. And when, when I was asked that for the first time, I didn't know how to respond because it wasn't what I was used to. But it was something that I wanted to know more about. It allowed me to really think internally, not about the thing that actually kept me sick, but what I thought I needed to get better. Mm, Thank you for sharing that. And I hope you don't mind me asking, was there a peer in your own personal journey that really stuck out to you or made a huge difference for you? I I actually, even though today I'm the director of Mental Health Peer Connection, um, I can honestly say I first walked through the doors of Western New York Independent Living Center uh, back in 2003. And when I walked into that door, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little emotional here when I talk about this. But uh, when I when I first encountered this organization, uh, I was sent there because I needed services. And that is when I was introduced to peer support and it just it it literally was trans it was it was transformational in my life because the things that kept me sick the things that I was ashamed of the things that I wanted to hide the things that I didn't want anybody to know about here was an organization where not only there was a lot of other people that shared some of the same stuff with me but these were people that were in the community. They were respected. Uh, they were uh, taxpaying citizens. And I, I just, it, I needed that. I needed that. It kept me coming back. It changed the way I thought about my own stuff. And I can remember years of sitting and thinking about not just what I was going through and asking why me and, you know what I mean, mm. the tears of the shame and the resentment, but being introduced to that and the first time, I guess, having those same tears, but there was no shame related to it. One final question. If you had a chance to say one thing to a person experiencing a crisis or heightened mental health symptoms or maybe what you even went through right now, what would you want to say to them? I I would say, uh, and, and I know sometimes it's the toughest thing to do when you feel like you know, I mean, what you're going through, it's only you and there's no hope for you. And you've tried so many things, some uh, that have been forced upon you and other things that when you've had the courage to reach out to get that assistance, it didn't work out. I'm here to say, keep trying, because one thing I know about recovery, it's, it's different for everybody. There is no straight line to recovery. Thank you so much, Kevin. I really appreciate you coming on today and sharing a bit of your own personal experience, too. Thank you for having me. We have both the phone number for the Renewal Center and Mental Health Peer Connections other services, as well as a transcript of this interview on our website at WBFO.org. I'm Emily Watkins. Thanks for listening. 
don't forget to like or subscribe so you can help others find this podcast. And if you love it, leave a review too. The WBFO Brief Podcast and the award-winning journalism of WBFO's news team are made possible by our members. Thank you for listening.